If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and global affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 17th of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. A missile hit Poland on Tuesday. Two people were killed. NATO and Poland have since said it was likely caused by Ukrainian air defense and not a Russian attack. It's unlikely in the minds of the trajectory that it was fired from Russia. Still, the incident raised concerns about the potential for escalation during the war. U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping met at the G20 in Bali, What came out of the summit on China and Russia? We also take a listener question on former U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to run for that office again. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Uh, it will be edited out, but listeners, I just want you to know that I was roasted by my colleague for how excited I sound uh, to talk about Trump some more on this podcast. But before we get what, to what, that... What doesn't come across is just the sheer horror on Emily's face as she read that yeah, line. <laughs> yeah. But before we get to that, um, we have a lot to discuss around the world. So let us get right into it. As we said at the top, on Tuesday, a missile hit Poland and two people were tragically killed. And while many at first assumed that it was a Russian strike that went astray... Poland and NATO now believe it was an accident caused by Ukrainian missile defense. Still, that two people were killed in Poland, a NATO country protected by Article 5, that is, an attack on one is an attack on all, reminded how easily Russia's war in Ukraine can escalate. I just want to say two quick things at the top before we get in. Obviously, when Poland and NATO say, and when we say that this is likely an accident caused by Ukrainian missile defense, that's not in any way to blame Ukraine, right? Like, obviously, the fact that any of this is happening is that Russia went to war in Ukraine. So I just want to make that clear. And the other thing is that, you know, I mentioned Article 5 there. We should be really careful when we talk about this. And I don't just mean us on this podcast. I mean, people who cover foreign affairs and politics more generally. Article 5 is not, it's not a tripwire. An alarm doesn't go off that says now you all need to go to war. And in fact, Poland yesterday said, well, maybe we'll need to trigger Article 4. 
which says basically that you need that you, that you consult should you feel that your territory is potentially threatened. We're recording this Wednesday, so perhaps this will have changed by the time this goes out. But even a few hours ago, they, Poland said, actually, maybe we don't need to, to call on Article 4. So I just want that context to be clear as we have this discussion. Um, but Katie, you wrote a piece on this, so, so we'll start with you. What were your thoughts when you learned reports of this tragedy? Yes, yeah, so I, I wrote a piece firstly to answer exactly that of what does this mean for Article 5 and what does that process look like? And as you very neatly summarized, I think the important points to take away from this are that Article 5 is not something that is automatically triggered. It would have been for Poland to decide to invoke Article 5, which is part of the founding treaty that declares that an attack on one member of the alliance is considered an attack on all. So firstly, there is a decision point for Poland, which we should be clear, there is no indication they have any plans to trigger. But even had they done so, it would then be for each individual member of the alliance then to decide how they would respond. I think a a lot of the way this was initially being reported was this will trigger Article 5, which will trigger a a military response from, from NATO members, which, to be clear, is not how the system works. Um, What was under very serious consideration was triggering Article 4, which, as I explained in in the piece, has previously happened. This is what happened right at the start of the war. This requires NATO members to come together to reaffirm their commitment to the principle of collective defence. So that certainly seemed to be much much more um, what was within the realm of possibility. I think for me, the two potential paths that I saw this taking last night, and I think this is still somewhat undecided, was whether this would really strengthen resolve and really fuel calls from the US and its allies, particularly coming as this did during the G20 summit in Bali, that this would really empower the argument of this is why Ukraine needs more support. This is why we need to be very clear in condemning Russia's aggression and we need to give Ukraine everything necessary to to end this war on their terms. But there was also a possibility, and I think this is still where we are to some extent, that this could also empower calls on the other side and the calls that we've seen from the likes of China, that this shows how this conflict can escalate and therefore the need to bring it to a ceasefire. I should say China has not commented in response to the missile beyond saying that the situation is, is, is unclear and calling for for calm and restraint. But I think I can see how this can equally fuel that argument of this is why it's important that the conflict is contained and that efforts are made to to bring this to a ceasefire as soon as possible. Ido, if you could give us your reactions and also maybe put this against the backdrop of the past several days of Ukraine's military, not victory, but, but advances. Well, the the first thing I think you can say is that this was always kind of known to be a risk that spillover from the conflict intentionally or otherwise could hit the several NATO member states which border Ukraine. And in particular, Russia has struck Lviv, which is very close to the Polish border, several times um, repeatedly at the beginning of the war and also in recent weeks with these strikes on essential infrastructure. So that something like this could happen was was never really beyond the realm of possibility. And this does highlight that equipment and sort of things things can go wrong 
clearly this doesn't appear to have been fired by Russia. This was a missile that was fired by Ukraine, but it was fired because of Russian strikes and because of Russian strikes in Western Ukraine, very close to the Polish border, which is why this has happened. The context for this is that Ukraine has had a good past several days insofar as one can have good days in a war. If you could speak a bit about what what has been going on militarily in the country. Yeah, sure. So Ukraine retook the city of Kherson, which is in the south, and it's the only major regional capital that Russia had captured since it invaded in February. Mariupol is not a regional capital, although it's bigger than Kherson, I think. And that was a massive kind of symbolic and practical victory for Ukraine. It's not a massive deal in military terms, but it's a huge symbolic victory because it's an important city that Ukraine had vowed to liberate. And also it's territory that Russia has said is now Russian since it annexed four Ukrainian regions, including Hasson in September, um, which led to this kind of rather farcical episode where Dmitry Peskov, the um, Kremlin spokesperson, denounced a visit by Zelensky to Hasson by saying this was Russian territory. I mean, kind of really just comical. And uh, I mean, this kind of is significant for a few reasons, but I think the kind of most obvious one to an international audience is that there were there were lots of fears and this was kind of suggested by Putin when he was annexing these regions and so on that that these regions would now come under the Russian nuclear umbrella as a result of them being considered Russian and thus Russian nuclear doctrine would cover them and that has been shown so far to be completely hollow if if the annexations were a sort of ploy to try and deter Ukraine from advancing further out of fear of nuclear retaliation or for the West to stop delivering weapons because they think that now Russia is going to use nukes in response to an attack on the territory that it says is its own, that's been shown to be just completely hollow. So so it's very significant from from that perspective. Yeah, we said at, at the time after the declaration of the annexation that this was setting up a, a bluff that was going to be called, that Ukraine was not going to stop fighting because Putin had declared this territory was now magically Russian. And that has happened. Ukraine has called Russia's bluff. It, it's taken back this this key city. And it, it's not true that there's been no response. We've seen extraordinarily devastating strikes across Ukraine on the civilian power infrastructure. But I think we have seen the t- talk about the nuclear threats really really recede despite these this remarkable answers. The other thing is that the Russian army, the Russian generals were calling for a withdrawal from Kherson for, for weeks, if not months. It was always a kind of anomaly as to, because basically the in the south of the country, the Russian advance had largely stalled along the left, so western bank of the Dnieper, the, the river that kind of cuts through Ukraine from roughly from north to south. And Kherson is on the right side. So you had this kind of very relatively difficult position for the Russians to defend because they had to resupply their troops in Kherson over the river. And while the river is a kind of a natural barrier, which was allowing them to defend from the left bank against advances from the right bank, Kherson was on the right bank. And so it wasn't as easy to defend and it was very difficult to resupply and so on. So it was it was always a kind of military and strategic anomaly in a way that a lot of other territory isn't necessarily, at least in the South. So I've spoken to people who say this is a kind of rationalisation of 
Russia's lines? Is the kind of is them digging in, finding more defensible positions ahead of the winter, where a lot of analysts expect that there won't be as many significant advances one way or the other? The conflict and the exchange of territory will slow down, and this is them kind of digging in at least for the next few months. Last question on this for you, Katie. What will you be watching? You know, in the next forty-eight hours, with respect to Ukraine and Poland and the strikes. I think. I mean, I think one thing I would say is that at every point where we've seen Ukraine make advances, there has been a tendency to for the analytical response to be, okay, now now this is it. They're they're going to really struggle to to take further ground. And Ido is right to say that I think we're seeing the Russians now adopt a more defensible line um, and and dig in for what I think they're hoping will be a much slower pace of operations through the winter. But at every point, Ukraine has proved those predictions wrong. So I will be watching to see what Ukraine actually does rather than what the, the commentariat kind of predicts for Ukraine's next and, steps. And with, with respect to the situation in Poland... You think that, that for now it's crisis averted, but crisis potential remains. I think this could very well be exploited by anyone looking to make the argument that this is why, particularly if Ukraine's advances slow down, that this is why the shift needs to be made towards negotiations. And to be clear, there is no one for Ukraine to 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 negotiate with um, in good faith at this Mm. point. But I can see how this empowers that argument, that this is why the next phase of of this conflict, and and China has been calling for this from the start, the next phase needs to be to move towards meaningful negotiations towards a ceasefire. So I think that could lead to pressure on Ukraine. All right, we will leave that there. We will put Katie's piece that we mentioned in the show notes. And for now, we are going to turn to Bali but not in a fun way. Uh, The G20 summit in Bali happened this week. Biden had a, to me, surprisingly, non-combative meeting with Xi, and the G20 put out a statement on Russia's war in Ukraine. Katie, were you surprised by how seemingly constructive and not confrontational the U.S.-China summit, mini-summit, meeting, whatever you want to call it, uh, appeared to be? Yeah, as we know from our team meetings, I am not someone who generally looks on the brighter and sunnier side of prospects. Um, It was really unclear until the meeting actually got underway how it was going to go. And there was absolutely a real possibility that this was going to be a very hostile, a very tense meeting that both sides were just going to angrily read their talking points. And perhaps it would be quite a short meeting. But from the moment that we saw the first pictures of, of Biden and Xi meeting and, you know, greeting each other really quite warmly. They are two men who have known each other for a long time. They have known each other since since Biden was vice president. It was clear that I think both wanted to set a tone of, if not constructive, you know, these were not negotiations. They weren't even really discussions. They were more both sides laying out their bottom lines, their red lines, their their positions, but emphasizing the importance of talking. I think for me, that was the most Im- single most important thing to come out of the talks was this indication from the leaders on both sides that it was important to keep talking, to keep channels of communication open, because that is something that we had really seen in danger after 
Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August, we saw China suspend talks on a number of very important issues. So I think this was a signal from the top leaders on both sides on the importance of resuming those talks, of keeping keeping lines of communication open and avoiding accidental escalation towards a very serious situation. But what it didn't do was resolve any of the underlying differences. I think it was it was notable, particularly on, on Taiwan, which seems to have dominated a lot of the discussion, how far apart they are, and that there is no indication that either side is, is interested in ceding ground at all. So I think this was certainly positive that they are talking, that they are committing to keep talking, but this doesn't resolve any any of the underlying very serious differences between the two powers. You know, the G20 came out with a statement on Russia. What were your first impressions? Were you surprised at how did they were able to put out a statement were they, that it was as, as strong as it was? I saw some people were, although I think we should also note that some of the countries involved, for example, I think some are like every time India speaks out against the war, people are surprised, even though India has done that pretty consistently throughout without voting against Russia at the UN and without actually changing its military or economic relations to Russia. But anyway, I'm opining. Ido, what did you make of the statement? I think the statement largely highlights the diplomatic isolation that Russia has endured since it invaded Ukraine. It's got virtually no explicit backers in the international community, at least countries of any kind of significance. I mean, it's got Belarus and North Korea and Syria, and that's more or less it. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there are about seven countries that vote with Russia at the UN, I think. The G20 statement said that most members strongly condemned the war in Ukraine, and although it did highlight that some had different views, which kind of is a reference to, I think, largely India and China, which haven't offered full-throated support to Russia, but neither have they condemned Russia in the same way as Western countries. And it kind of once again highlights how isolated Russia is on the international stage. I mean, it's quite telling that Putin didn't turn up. He sent Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, to attend instead, I think because he realises that it could be, it could have turned out very embarrassing for him. I mean, this, this kind of happens at most international summits where Russia is a member now. It happened at the meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in Uzbekistan earlier this year, where Russia was uh, publicly chided by India and kind of offered quite lukewarm support by China. There's a meeting of the Russian-led Security Alliance, uh, the CSTO, in Yerevan next week, and Putin is going to attend that. But even that is probably unlikely to offer Russia support the, the kind of support that Russia would like. Even very, very close allies, or what were until recently very close allies, countries like Armenia and Kazakhstan. So yeah, this this kind of, I think, once again highlights how isolated Russia is on the international scene. And that's something that is probably not going to improve for Russia in the immediate term. And I think not something that was predicted at the start of the war or throughout, right? There's been much made of, oh, Russia actually has more support than it than we think and, and so on and so forth. But as you say, it's really isolated from any meaningful or I don't want to say, you know, obviously, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? And meaningful or significant, maybe, partners. Katie, we will give you the last word on this. What did you make of the G20 statement? Let me also just 
say that my um, very good dog who has been sleeping peacefully in the room throughout this recording is now snoring. So if... (laughs) Okay, listeners, this is hugely exciting for me and I will tell you why. And I don't mean to add to sound glib during this very serious discussion, but every week, sometimes more than once a week on this podcast, my dog comes in and makes interruptions. She shakes her collar. She licks her water extra loud. She like rub her body against the couch or the rug to try to make noise. Why? Because I'm at home and she hears me on the podcast. Our producer, May, has said that she knows my dog very intimately, although they've never met. So <laughs> it is frankly thrilling that Shiloh, a good girl, is not the, the doggy delinquent for this episode. All right. With that warning and interlude, Katie, give us your thoughts. I think this statement was as much as could have been expected in the circumstances. The language is strong. It is not surprising that it is phrased that most members strongly condemned the war rather than Ada's facial expression suggests that you can't hear Shackleton. <laughs> Quite well, yeah. Up. He's so... Shackleton, bye. <laughs> Katie, let sleeping dogs lie. It is okay. okay. Listeners, okay. this dog is just getting the rest, some respite. It is not, no, it's not an indication. He was up very late listening to the Trump announcement. He's very tired. Yeah, he's a political um, watcher. Come on. Anyway, go on. I think the statement was as strong as could have been expected in the circumstances. It is not surprising that there is the carve out that this is most members. China and India, I don't think would have would have signed up to anything more. And I think it's a it's a reiteration of what we've seen, particularly in terms of 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 China's position, that they are not going to condemn Russia. She in his meetings in Bali I think has avoided even using the term war. They tend to talk about the situation in Ukraine in his meeting with with Biden. He he talked about the complexity of this situation. So there is China is not prepared to condemn Russia, but it is also not going to defend Russia, particularly in these international forums or, or fora, as I believe it, it 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 technically is. And to be clear, China wants an end to this war. It just is not prepared to publicly pressure. Russia to do so, and it doesn't want the war to end on terms that could see the collapse of, of Putin's regime. So th- this shows, Ido is right to say this highlights Russia's diplomatic isolation. You know, earlier in the year, it was entirely possible that Putin would have attended this summit and that he would not have been watching from, from Moscow, as has, as has been the case. But it is also true that Russia was still part of these meetings. China's foreign minister Wang Yi still met with Sergei Lavrov. So the isolation is is not complete, but I think certainly this is a weaker position than Russia would have imagined that it would be in by this stage earlier in the year. We'll stop there for now. Obviously, we will continue to follow the story of the world's support, or in Russia's case, lack thereof, Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Armand Yanucci. And I'm Anusha Kellyan. 
and we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukisi Deborah, and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, we are going to move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. That was so beautiful. And I am so sorry that we are going to waste that kind of coordination on the following theme. All right. So some listener, and I don't blame the listener for for this at all, asked, will Trump be the Republican presidential candidate in 2024? So if you have remained unaware of this, um, I am sorry to be the one to tell you that Trump has officially announced that he is running for president again. This was, what, seven years, two impeachments, one storming of the Capitol, various different investigations into potential criminal dealings um, separate this announcement from his first announcement. He's back, baby. He says that uh, he says that you in can't, two years... You can't see Emily's face, um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's really a sight to behold. I, th- I think, you know, he said that in two years, everyone will realize how ruinous things are in this country and, and want him back. And that the only reason Republicans didn't do well in the midterms is that People don't see it yet. Okay. Will he be the candidate? Here's the thing, listeners. Various pundits, politicians, what have you, at the moment are saying no and are saying that his time has passed. They want to go to greener pastures. They want to go to people who don't have extremist election denials on the ballot. They want to go to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, maybe, you know, who's very conservative and I would actually say far right, but not the same open threat 
to American democracy. Will this work? I don't know, listeners. Personally, I remember 2015 and 2016 and 2017 and 2018 and 2019 and 2020 and 2021. (laughs) All other years where people said, this is it. He's gone too far this time. Surely we've grown backbones and have then, lo and behold, come back to support the person who is undermined, not to sound dramatic, but the very fabric of American democracy. Do I think their spines will hold strong this time? Not really. But perhaps he's proven electorally toxic enough that they will do for their party what they could not manage to do for the good of the country. And once and for all, dump Trump. First, barring actual consequences for his potentially criminal actions, they will have to beat him in the Republican primary. Can they do this? Honestly, I'm not sure. I don't know. But we'll find out. We'll be covering it here on the New Statesman World Review on the newstatesman.com slash international. Why? Because it's Trump time. Listeners, we're going to be covering him. You know, in all seriousness, he could be the candidate. And what would happen then? I'm not actually, I'm not sure. You know, Katie, anyone have thoughts? Yeah. Emily, I was just going to ask if you could chart for our listeners, as you did in our morning meeting this morning, one small example of this, which is the course that we have seen Lindsey Graham yes. okay. chart so, Lindsey Graham, last week. Yes, Lindsey Graham, Republican senator from South Carolina, you know, earlier on says, I don't think that Trump should make the announcement that he's running for president on the evening of November, November 15th. After the speech, takes his fingers, moves them to the keyboard on twitter.com and says, that that was exactly, sorry, it's, it's not funny, but that that was exactly the tone that Trump needs, that the party needs, and that the country needs. So, like, it, it lasted hours, this sort of post-poor midterms performance resolve. But we've seen this from Lindsey Graham before. He, after the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, he got up and he gave this very passionate speech about how he prayed Biden would lose, but Biden won, and we can't do this, it's over. And then he came back on TV as, as a you know, or, or speaking to reporters, quite supportive of Trump. And at this point, I don't know if it's fear or political opportunism or some truly toxic combination of the two. And if you're a an American conservative listener who somehow has found his or her way to this podcast, and this is like annoying to you that I'm saying this, prove me wrong. Go on, do it. Don't support Trump. That'll show me. Be resolved. Come on, you can you can do it. I don't believe in you, but I hope that you'll, uh, you know, come on, show me I'm wrong. Emily, a lot has also been made of the idea that Rupert Murdoch has now washed his hands of Trump and that we've seen titles like the New York Post call him Trumpty Dumpty and hail DeSantis as the future. What would you say, given the recent history about the long lasting or not implications of, of that move? Yeah, again, I mean, today they had a at the very bottom of the New York Post's cover was Florida man announces he's running for office, which is like, that's funny. I'll give it to you, New York Post. But I can also remember after Trump attacked McCain back when he was first running for president the first time, Senator John McCain, the now late John McCain, instead of him, like, I like people who weren't captured referring to McCain's time in the war. You know, they said like, he's he's done it now. And lo, he had not done it now for the Murdoch empire, which includes Fox News, came back and supported him. So again, do they mean it? Like, are they, are they really so sick of losing that they will cover this man minimally and like a loser when they do. I don't know. All right. I think that's enough on Trump for me for today, but don't worry. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll be back to, to Donald, the former president on this podcast. 
Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in on Trump or any other subject about foreign affairs at www.newstatesman.com slash you ask us. That's www.newstatesman.com slash you ask us or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with HRS journalist Amir Tubon on the current place of Israeli politics. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.